0: Before we get started, I want to tell you about my Saturday morning routine. Some people watch TV, some people exercise. I go to quietlightbrokerage.com and I check out what's for sale. If you don't know, QuietLight is a platform where you can buy and sell online businesses. So if you don't want to start something from scratch, or if you don't know if your idea is any good, you can go here and see businesses that are already working to some extent and buy them or use them as inspiration. And for listeners of the podcast, they're offering a free online course on how to prepare to sell your business for six, seven, or eight figures check out the course at com slash exit strategy. Again, that's com slash exit strategy. Okay, enough about my by Saturday mornings. Let's kick off today's show. Welcome to episode five of the Exit Strategy Podcast. I'm here with Paul Tran. Paul, you're the CEO and founder of Manscaped. Native started in 2015. Manscaped started around then. Uh, Manscaped sells products that helps men groom their groins. Is that right?
1: That's perfectly right. There was white space.
0: And some of the products that you sell, um, just so people have clarity, are the lawnmower, which helps men trim their pubes, deodorant for your balls, and a foot odor product as well. What's the foot odor product called?
1: It's called the foot duster.
0: It's called the foot duster. Okay. And you guys have a really cheeky sense of humor. You know, when uh, people go into Manscaped or look at Manscaped's past, you know, I've read some of your taglines. They're fantastic. Um, I remember one because I was reading it. It says, when you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. Who came up with that? I
1: mean, mean, that's true, right? (laughs) That's absolutely true. Who came up
0: with that tagline?
1: (laughs) We have a really talented marketing team. It evolved as, I can't remember where exactly that tagline came from. But we just have a really talented marketing team that, that comes up with these really catchy sayings all the time.
0: Yeah, that's certainly really catchy. You know, one of the questions I was thinking about when I was doing some research about Manscaped is how often are men trimming their hedges? Do you guys have any idea? Do you guys like survey your customers about that kind of information or what's it look like? What is we it? do
1: survey our customers and actually it's, it turned out to be much more frequent than we thought. A lot of men, you know, of course, in anything, there's a bell curve, right? Sure where the bell curve, the highest frequency is around once a week to to once every 14 days. It's between seven and 14 days is when when somebody maintenance
0: their bush. What's the other end of the bell curve? Is the other end once every like five years?
1: The other end, of course, is, you know, it also follows the age gap, right? When you're much older, um, less incentivized to do it. So it's like never. That's the other side of the bell curve. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Uh, Who are buying these products? Is is it men who are like, hey, I want to make myself look better and my tree to stand taller? Or is it women who are like, I'm tired of looking at my husband or boyfriend or partners looking like this. And so he needs to trim.
1: Well, we actually have a pretty eclectic mix between men and women. During the holidays, we open marketing much more to women. So we have more women customers than the rest of the year. But really, the truth is that if you haven't, groom down there you don't know what it feels like if after you've groomed that you feel it's refreshing so we've seen that men like that actually start like really enjoy it it's like you know we, like we say you got you know, your hair is really long and then you finally cut your hair it feels really relaxing really cool and i think men are starting to enjoy that it feels fresher it's not as damp so you start getting used to that feeling and it becomes just a normal thing
0: yeah You're right about a lot of that. I know like when I shave sometimes or at least get a barber to cut my beard afterwards, I just feel like I'm a new human being and feel great. I don't know what it is about that. Like, I still don't understand what psychological impact that is where I'm like, okay, this guy has just cut my beard. It looks good, but now I feel like I'm a newly reborn person.
1: Yeah, and that's what we strive for. As the essence of the company, at the end of the day, we just want you to feel better. Like the way that we think about it is life is pretty rough already. You know, there's so much to do. Yeah, Um, there's so many responsibilities. We just want to make your life just a little more enjoyable. Yeah, at the end of the day, that's our mission.
0: Yeah, and so there's a subscription element to the business as well. I imagine like the the hero product that you guys have is the lawnmower, like what trims hedges. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, the way I like to explain it is that when you look at the female body, you realize you start from head to toe. You're analyzing, right? you realize that there's a product and a brand for every single female care and need you can think of. When you go to the male body, you switch your attention to the male body, you start with your head, and you got all you got your Gillette, your Dollar sure. Shave Club, your Harry's, right? You go down to your, the torso, you got Native, you, know, you got Old Spice. Um, when you get down to the groin, there's nobody playing in the groin. Yeah, That is total empty white space. And, you know, we got lucky and fortunate and we recognized that three years ago, we were able to capitalize on that. We were to attain a, an amazing name. So Manscaped, you know, right now, I mean, we define the category of manscaping, right? So that manscape defines that category. We totally own this category. And, um, and what's really important for us is to create the best products. Like yeah. The way that we think about our mission and our mandate is that we don't optimize for anything other than quality. We're not optimizing for price. Like, we're not the cheapest products. We are the yeah. best products. Because there's just a lot of products out there, right? I mean, sure. everything from the low end to high end, what we want to focus on is creating the absolute best products. And that starts with our lawnmower.
0: Uh, talking about the lawnmower, which is like a trimmer for your pubes, really, and a fantastic name. You know, we'd love to delve more into the name of Manscaped and Lawnmower in a minute. But, like, you're on the Lawnmower 3.0. How did you guys decide what went from lawnmower 2.0 to 3.0 and what are you gonna put in lawnmower 4.0? Is there customer feedback involved in that Like what's going on for you guys to make those types of decisions?
1: Absolutely So we have a Facebook group and I want to plug it here it's the Facebook Ballers group <laughs> and it's a VIP group and it's invite only you have to you know ask to join but this group is for our closest best customers that are interactive with us. And when I say best, it's not on a monetary value, like how much you buy. It's just people that like the brand, that yeah. want to interact with myself and you know our executive team and a product development team. And so we have, I think, about close to two or 3,000 people in there that are really interactive, that they love to test products. So we have a great group of core Manscaped fans sure. that we can do, test new products. But one of the biggest things that we do is... Our blade has what we call skin-safe technology. And skin-safe makes it really difficult for you to, excuse my French, nick your balls, right? Yeah. Because if you've ever nicked yourself down there, it is the most horrible feeling.
0: I think that's what everyone is afraid of before they start manscaping, is like, what happens that if That is I the mess number one fear.
1: Up? Yeah. That is the number one fear. And I can tell you, it bleeds a lot. You know, it stands <laughs> and retracts. It hurts. It hurts all day. Yeah. So it's a real pain point. So our blades, we it, it, it's the only blade out there specifically engineered to trim your groin. It's not like any other area of your face, right? Like if you're talking about your beard, it's pretty really taut. Your face is really yeah. taut. It's really easy to trim, right? Sure. This is loose skin with yeah. hair on it. So it's not the same experience as trimming your beard. It's much more difficult. So go back to your question. Now, how do we determine the difference between the 2.0 and the 3.0? It's just innovating. In the product pipeline, it might take like a year to 18 months to engineer And a great product so we have multiple products lined up like we're designing the 4.0 at the same time we're designing the 5.0 and we're putting thought into the 6.0 because we're a hardware company in addition to soft goods so we have our own r&d lab that we built out that does all the soft goods like all the formulations you know the ball deodorant and everything else that we're going to get into but on a hardware side we have our own in-house industrial designers uh, material experts and engineers that design these and design and think through the problems that you have. So when we developed the 2.0, that was really our first mass product uh, with safe. And then the 3.0 was an evolution of the 2.0. You know, it had a light in there yeah. because we realized like, even if your bathroom is really lit, you know, there are yeah. shadows, the light, it, it seems like, oh, we, we thought about it. Is it a gimmick? You know, if we put a light, a light on there, would it be deemed as a gimmick? And then we actually put a light on a prototype, we're like, oh, this is actually really useful. Yeah. Because like you need to see down there. You know, like sure. it's not the same experience. You gotta see down there. So putting a light on there was made it into the 3.0. The 4.0, I, I don't want to talk about all the different features, but yeah, it we're really innovating on this experience. And I, I don't, we don't think that there's many companies that really looked at groin trimming and how to innovate in that area while making it safe, easy. And enjoyable.
0: And so going back to this Facebook group, are you gonna like reach out to the Facebook group and say, hey guys, we have the 4.0. Does anyone want to try a couple samples and give us your feedback before we finalize this production? Is that how it works? Or like you know, before you launch the
1: 4.0? That works all the time. That cycle is much more frequent with our soft goods products. So all of our ball deodorant and all the products that we're testing in the pipeline now that goes out, that gets tested internally, do all the stability testing.
0: Yeah.
1: And all of the employees use it. And then we expand it out to our VIP ballers group.
0: And then talk to me a little bit about R and D. It's really amazing that you sort of have that R and D in house as an independent company. We never had that as native as an independent company. And even once we joined Procter and Gamble, like we did some R and D internally, but most of the R and D we did like with third party manufacturers. How big is this R and D group? I haven't heard of like a startup sort of thinking about R and D as or like you know early on or within the first five years of their existence like you guys are doing. How big is that R and D group?
1: So that goes back to a, a firm belief of mine. I have always thought it was really important not only to go wide, but to also go deep. And what that means is you got to know you know, a lot of different things, but you just can't, you just can't be a jack of all trades but master of none. Yeah. I don't think an entrepreneur can be like that to be really successful. You not only have to go wide, but you also have to go deep and you got to be a master of a lot of things. So yeah. with that belief, we made sure that everything was done in-house, that like we never hired an agency. And we don't use any agencies for anything. All video production is done in-house. All media buying is done in-house. R&D is done in-house.
0: Oh, my God. So no everything. agencies. No agencies. The technology that you guys build out, you guys have your own developers. When you guys launch a TV commercial, you have your own in house production agency make it. You have your own in house creative agency decide what it is. And then your own in house, like uh, agency or your own in house employees to cut buy. it up as well and edit.
1: Yep. Cut it up, edit, and buy.
0: That's insane. How big is the entire team then?
1: Right now, we're seeing about 72 employees. Wow. Okay. So we're not that big.
0: Yeah, that is not that big and pretty amazing based on like the amount of content that I see coming out of Manscaped. So you guys are certainly productive at creating content. And when did you guys hire your first R&D employee then?
1: Well, I mean, just like many other startups in the CPG space, you know, we use contract manufacturers, we use a, a third party lab to create our first products. But I think in about a year, probably 14 months ago, when we started really building out our own R&D lab. Wow. Okay. And hired a first R and D research chemist, and we knew that we had to retain this knowledge and really understand it, you know, from top down. So having it in house, we got to iterate very quickly. And we didn't like this. Let's change it. You know, what would take weeks from working with a lab because you know yeah. we work with labs before. You got to send them a brief. They send you samples. Sure. And then you send them back and forth. Yeah. just the cycles are just way too long, right? Yeah. So for us having a team that we can work with hand in hand was just really accelerated that gotcha
0: okay let's start talking a little bit more about like the early days of manscaped so before this r&d team exists before you guys are sort of developing lawnmower 4.0 you know you guys are working on the original products manscaped gets on shark tank at some point Mm -hmm. you're on shark tank you're working on the original marketing for the company is do you always call the first product you release a lawnmower 1.0 it was called the lawnmower. Yeah. It was called the lawnmower. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. It's called the lawnmower. Tell me a little bit more about how this marketing strategy developed. Cause certainly, like, I think everyone is familiar with the dollar shave club, like, uh, commercial or video, initial video that really launched that brand and how spectacularly successful it was. You know, how Michael Dubin saying, you don't need Roger Federer to endorse your razor blade. Why are you paying Roger Federer to shave? How did you guys get started in terms of your marketing strategy?
1: So we knew that this is something that was good for men it helped with being it's hygienic and its cleanliness yeah so we started off with messaging in that way like dudes you guys should do this because it's good for you you know you'll feel better none of that
0: resonated how long did you try that type of marketing for that was like more serious and less cheeky probably for 3 months okay and how much money did you have to spend in those 3 months to be like this isn't working out if you had to ballpark it, what is it? Ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars?
1: No, I think we spent probably fifty thousand dollars on marketing okay. to realize that that didn't work. Then tell me about the evolution. Then what happened? Yeah. So then, being scientific, no, it, it just didn't gravitate to anyone. We basically changed gears and said, you know, we knew that there was a market for this and there was white space. We knew that we had to crack it and figure out how to communicate with men because communicating, like in my past, I've, I've had startups that focused primarily on women in skincare and perfumes and colognes and even in sass and other things. So, but we needed to understand that we had to get to that tipping point of understanding how to communicate with men in this way. And we realized that dudes aren't talking about this. Like, they don't stand around the water cooler and be like, hey, your hair looks so great today. What do you use? Was it a volumizer? Like, what kind of condition are you using? Dudes don't do that, right? Yeah. They don't talk about skincare. They don't talk about deodorants or hygiene, Right. But they'll talk about funny things, things that were hilarious that that entertains them. So then we started creating our first video, I remember, was a video because it was towards the end of the year. And we had produced this video of Santa Claus trimming. So... It was in an apartment, and uh, Ryan Fiore, our VP of Marketing, was the one that actually dressed up as Santa. Uh-huh. And he's got his Santa pants down on his ankles, and the camera is just panning, and it looks like snow falling down. And then as you pan oh, out, God. you see Santa's legs. Yeah. And as as it's snowing, you hear this like buzzing sound. I was like, yeah. Eh. So like, you're so you're like, oh, it's kind of snowing indoors because it was like in inside a house. So as you're and then like – we had another person was like, Catherine was sprinkling these fake white hairs that on to the ground. And we, we were pulling back the camera that was panning back and panning out. And you can see Santa's legs. That was kind of the first video that we shot.
0: Was that the first like move you had towards the cheeky sense of humor from being serious about like, hey, this is good for you. It's going to make you feel better. Yeah, that was the first one. Okay. Let me talk a little bit more about the 50,000 you spent where that didn't work well. Where did you end up spending that 50,000 over those like three months to be like, let's test to see if this concept has any legs? Cause you know, you have a product that you know consumers want. You're trying to find the right marketing channels and the right marketing, you know, messaging to go out with that. That marketing messaging is what's failing. Where did you spend that $50,000? I
1: think this answer is going to be kind of de- a de facto answer across many, many startups, yeah. especially in the early days. You spend it on Facebook and you spend it on Google. I and mean, that is just yeah. the reality. Yeah, yeah. What I do want to say about that is like all you entrepreneurs out there, don't get a false sense of confidence that your cap is so low, um, you know, that you're doing so well on Facebook, that this is going to scale infinitely. Yeah, because yeah. you start running those numbers, right? You're like on Facebook, like, oh man, my cap is twenty bucks. Um, if I dump two hundred million dollars into marketing, I would yeah. make this much. Yes, it doesn't there work. It's definitely it doesn't work that way. There is a Facebook and a Google wall, and I'll use a different different uh, Facebook uh, ceiling. You're gonna hit that ceiling, and it's gonna hurt. A lot of entrepreneurs need to realize that early on. We were really fortunate that we realized that early on, because you got to think about it. Facebook is really, really good at targeting. I mean Facebook and Google these guys are data powerhouses. They know how to target and find the right buyers for you. But if your market, your total addressable market is this big, yeah, right? You're going to hit that ceiling pretty quickly. Sure. You know, so you have to really think about how to broaden your product appeal and, and to make sure that you are addressing a very large total addressable market. If like your addressable market, like eventually, you're going to have to market to men or women or both. Yeah, if you're still doing like fine-tuned targeting, you know yeah. lookalikes, yeah. and you're trying to extract every value, that's, you can't steal it.
0: What you said definitely has a, is absolutely correct. At native, we saw a two dollar CAC in twenty fifteen, a four dollar CAC in twenty sixteen, a six fifty CAC in twenty seventeen. Even looking at that two dollar CAC, it basically more than tripled over the course of two years. And we saw those like there were multiple ceilings we got to. There was a ceiling at two hundred thousand dollars, there was a ceiling at five hundred thousand dollars, there was a much denser ceiling at a million dollars. And trying to push against those ceilings took a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of like right messaging. And you're absolutely right from an audience targeting perspective as well, like lookalike audiences. Absolutely crushed it for us for a really long period of time until we hit one of those ceilings. Like you know, we used a lookalike audience of one percent, which looked like you know two million people, and then you know you start expanding that to two percent and three percent, and then all of a sudden lookalikes don't work anymore. At some point, you're just like, I'm targeting all women, and then you're like, I'm targeting all humans that exist on Earth now, because in reality, like not everyone is going to buy something when they see a Facebook ad. You know, Facebook does a great job of segmenting their audiences. Let's say they have three hundred million people in the United States, something like eighty percent of the people that are on Facebook generally won't click ads and make a purchase from it. And so everybody is competing for those 20% of people who do buy things online. Even if your total addressable market is this big, in reality, online, it's this big because, you know, there's just fewer people buying things that are online.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to get to, if you want to build a truly scalable business, you got to eventually figure out how to get off of platforms. You got to be able to get off of online I mean, online should, is always a part of your marketing mix, your marketing strategy, right? But it should never be 100%. Like as soon as you can, you're going to go through withdrawal symptoms of getting off platforms, but you're going to start diversifying your, your marketing or it's just never going to scale. Yeah. For us, we're everywhere now. We have figured out how to, and this is, we're very fortunate. We have a really talented marketing team, you know, but we got off of Facebook and Google probably last year. And when I say off, I mean, we really diversified. Yeah, One of our big channels is still YouTube because a lot of people spend their time there. Um, we're one of the biggest spenders on Hulu. Right? We have a massive TV budget. UFC sponsorship. I mean, we sponsor the UFC. We haven't really announced it yet, but we're going to be one of the exclusive sponsors of the San Francisco 49ers. You know, wow. so, what does like, that
0: mean? If you're an exclusive sponsor for the 49ers, what does that mean?
1: That means that I think that next year when you go to Levi Stadium... And you go into any of the bathrooms, you're going to see our signage on top of all the urinals. Wow. I mean, the great thing is those are some things be crap, right? It's yeah. like how many companies out there can actually buy that ad unit? Who's going to buy that ad unit? Like Apple's not going to buy ad sure. unit on top of a urinal. Yeah. But it fits so well for us. And it fits our cheeky tone that it works for us. So like what are you doing right there? You're thinking about it. So, you know, when you see an ad that says, has a finger point down with a Trevor and says, got Bush, you're like, mm. you know, you're standing right there. You can kind of evaluate and think about that.
0: Okay. I want to talk much more about this. I want to talk a little bit about the past as well. But before we get off this topic, okay, ballpark the cost to me for a San Francisco 49ers sponsorship. Is it six figures or seven figures or five figures?
1: Oh, it's definitely not five figures.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine it's five figures. Uh, let me give you a, a couple of examples. You know, we interviewed Kara from Hintwater like a couple of weeks ago. She told me how she bought a Super Bowl commercial for under $1 million. We interviewed Andrew, who's the CEO of this company called HIMS, which is like a men's sexual wellness company. And he bought urinals over Giant Stadium. Give me an idea of what, like, just ballpark the cost for me. You don't need to give me the exact number. Is it? High six figures, low six figures, mid six figures, is it seven figures? You know, at Native, we were running a very lean budget, but by the time we were doing over a $100 million, we had a pretty sizable marketing budget. We were spending money on TV ads, on billboards in New York City. We're going to spend a million dollars in 2020, or we were going to before COVID really hit, on subway ads in New York City in 2020. And, you know, that included like station takeovers, which cost like a very low six figures. And that included some photos and subway trains, which cost like about $40,000, What does a 49ers exclusive sponsorship get you? Do you have a booth? Are you going to go to games? Give me the price or give me a ballpark (laughs) price.
1: I would say it's in the six figures, not to the seven figures yet, but definitely in the six figures.
0: Okay. And does it include a bunch of tickets or am I going to see you at a bunch of uh, 49ers games?
1: Yeah. I mean, the 49ers are just a phenomenal team management wise. They're just so awesome. We got to go to the Super Bowl with them. We were the NFC playoffs in their box. It was uh, an amazing experience.
0: Okay, let's rewind a little bit and go back to the Santa Claus commercial. So you guys have, you know, it's been three months. The seriousness, it wasn't working. You were spending on Facebook and Google, burned $50,000, didn't love what happened. You've sort of pivoted now. You're running this Santa Claus commercial or like you got the Santa Claus video. What do you do with it? you like, it's really funny. It's cheeky. It's super interesting, but it's time relevant because it's winter. Nobody's ever heard of Santa Claus trimming his pubes, but that's really funny. What do you do with that commercial? And when do you realize that cheeky sense of humor makes sense?
1: So I would answer that in two parts. The first part is, once again, you run it on Facebook and Google. That's the first thing. Yeah. You run it on Facebook, you run it on YouTube. And what you're tracking for at that time is, how much am I paying per CPM and per click? What is it costing you to deliver traffic to the website? Yeah. And then when they get to the website, then now you have to make sure that you're really observant and performing a lot of conversion rate optimization, right? You got to make sure that that lead closes when they get to the site, right? You present them with the right offer. So the first part of me answering your question is, you know, we got that video, we're testing, we're running it on Facebook, we're running it on YouTube, and we're tracking how much it's costing us. And remember, at that time, we weren't broad yet. We're still like, we're going to advertise to men that's 18 to you know 25, going to run this video with this call to action. And then there's, you know, we're running 35 to 40 with this video or this different call to action. And then it's all going to drive to the website of course, you're calculating what are my CPMs, what are my CPAs, and more importantly, my CPCs. And then when they get to the site, that's when you really start doing a lot of work, like offer testing. What do I need to offer? What do I need to say? Because early days, really, really early days, what you're looking for are signals. And you have to be really in tune with your entire marketing strategy to understand these signals. And what I mean by signals is early on, I set up three pillars of what is important to our male audience, and this is very early on, when you trim the bush, this, the tree stands taller. That was an, an important motivation fa- factor for them. Yeah, Use the right tools for the job. If you're going to do this, don't hurt yourself,
0: because yeah.
1: that was a really important marketing message that really got them, that really got you to understand it. We distilled down this really big concept of, hey, guys, don't cut yourself, because that's crude to say, use the right tools for the job. So when you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller, it tells you, okay, well, then that works. You kind of equate and you kind of understand that there's a benefit outside of you just feeling good. Because for us, we knew that ultimately, we wanted to be a much bigger brand that encompasses masculinity and empowerment for men. We didn't want to just be a growing business. And that was never our intention. We wanted to empower men. But to get there, we had to figure out what men were receptive to. So that's where that, you know, if you trim the bushes, the tree stands taller. Men got that right away. Yeah. They got why they should do that and how they would receive this feeling of empowerment. And then after that, it was all about use the right tools for the job because don't cut yourself, don't hurt yourself. Sure. But that was the big learning that cost probably 200,000, quarter of a million to really learn. And it's really kind of philosophical when you talk about marketing in this way. But like to spend that much money just to learn these two key things. And a lot of people like they are not marketers. They're not really in tune with their audience. That might just pass them, you know, like then they'll think, Oh, I didn't really get that. But we tested a lot of marketing message and realized that that those two things combined together really resonated, really got meant to understand why you should do this, the need and why you should use dedicated tools that we created to solve this problem. So I think any startup trying to build a brand and not just like a SaaS platform where you're just selling utility, right? Your SaaS platform, you're selling utility. We solve your problem like this, right? To really build a brand in a CPG, a highly competitive CPG space, you have to distill your marketing message to be so fine-tuned that it really resonates with a broad audience.
0: So the two that worked were Tree Stands Taller, Use the Right Tools for the job. What were some of the marketing messages you thought might work and ended up not working? Do you remember any of those?
1: (sighs) God, I can't remember this. There were so many. We had a, a bunch. There was, I think it was like 10 on that made it to the short list of, you know, it was like feel fresher or something like that yeah. was one of them. Make sure you're clean and ready all the time. It was a bunch of different along that vein, Yeah, but it just didn't resonate. You know, it was sure. just like, it just didn't click with dudes. And that's what you're searching for. As, as marketers uh, trying to market any product. That's what you're searching for. You're searching for how to sell your product in one simple statement to put inside your audience understands it and sees the need instantly.
0: Yeah. So you spend $200,000 sort of testing that messaging on Facebook and Google. Yeah. I really liked what you said earlier, which was once you get people to your website, you have to like optimize offers as well. I feel like too often people are like, great, what is my CPA? And my CPA is how good is my Facebook ad? And what they don't look at is how good is my landing page? Am I convincing people once they get to my landing page that they should buy this product, that it's a good value, and that they should buy it now and not two weeks from now? And I feel like those are two sides of the same coin, and both are going to dramatically impact CPA, right? Like you can say, hey, tree stands taller on your Facebook ad, and like the flip side of that coin, the landing page can be use the right tools for the job. But if the landing page is like, buy this trimmer because your balls aren't the same as your face, it could be a very different type of Mm -hmm. CPA.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs... That's where I go back to. It's difficult to hire an agency unless you got a lot of money. Unless you're, you know you're venture funded. We weren't at that time. Unless you had a lot of money, you wouldn't be able to buy enough time of an agency to yeah. actually come up with these things. If you're an entrepreneur and you think you have a really phenomenal product, you spent years building this product. I like, I would say take that leap Like don't be shy because at, in my core, like half of my career, I was technologist. Like, I didn't do CPG. Yeah, I wasn't a branding guy. I wasn't a marketer. I was technologist. I built SaaS platforms and software. So I would say that don't be shy. Take that risk and do the marketing yourself because you're the only one that really understands the value of your product. Like To try to communicate that with an agency, it's really, really hit or miss. Unless you've got a lot of money and you're paying for a lot of their time. It just, I have seen it not work out very well.
0: I couldn't agree more. When Native was growing, the entire time we were an independent company, I ran all paid ads after we sold the business, I still ran paid ads until probably like six months ago or something to that effect, or like, you know, maybe eight months ago at this point, because I was just like, this is the backbone of the business. This is how we're growing. This is one of the reasons we're growing very quickly. And I don't want to outsource that to somebody else who by necessity, like is an agency by definition, and there will be agency costs as a result of that. They won't care as much. They don't care about the business. They won't be looking at the metrics as quickly as I am or as frequently as I am. And they won't be iterating on different tests on messages. Like Mm -hmm. If this is a skill that's important to the company, I should get good at this skill, or I should at least understand this skill. One of the things that you mentioned was you'd need a lot of money in order to hire these agencies to get them to do good work. Going back to what you guys did, you guys spent $50,000, and it didn't really work out with the serious messaging. $200,000, and you realized what messaging did work. How were you able to afford this stuff? Because early on, you were bootstrapped.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were bootstrapped for, and we grew organically for a very, very long time. Through prior successes, you got to gamble and reinvest. I would think that's the best way to to talk about it. And fundraising and spending investor dollars, it has its price. There's a cost to that. (laughs) I think very often that gets overshadowed by the glitz and glamour of fundraising and closing around. And that's where I would advise entrepreneurs that, you know, closing, because right now when you read the news, Every closes around. Everyone's cheering. There's a lot of PR around it. It's like, dude, that's just the beginning. Like, you don't know how much those investors are going to be on your ass all the time, You know how to spend that money. And then you get into a point where you're starting to spend frivolously. Yeah. It's like, I guarantee you, if we had a million dollars in the bank, we wouldn't have spent uh, $200,000. We would have spent half a million testing. Yeah. And so I think it's a cyclical trap to raise money way too early because number one, that's when you lose the most of your company, right? Sure. It's early on.
0: Most dilution, yeah.
1: And the most amount of dilution. You look back and you're like, oh my God, that was crazy. Right? Yeah. But then <laughs> but then, like, it makes you not as strict with yourself and with your budget.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with all that. We raised like fifty thousand dollars and it was a great sign that we were onto a successful business. We raised that at native, we raised fifty thousand dollars at like a five million dollar valuation, probably four months into the business, and then another two hundred and fifty K maybe within the first year. The reason that I did that early on, the business was working. I wasn't like in reality, we didn't even need that two hundred and fifty K. I was just like, I wanna make sure that there's external validation that what I'm doing here is right. I think that was the primary reason. And the secondary reason was that I was like, I'm in San Francisco and this is what everyone here does. Everyone raises money as a sign of success. There's this great tweet I saw. I don't remember who tweeted it. And someone's like, raise $10 million and you get invited to every party in San Francisco, sell your business and make $10 million crickets. (laughs) Like people somehow celebrate the fundraising more than they do actually the successful exits, which doesn't make any sense. What scale were you at when you did raise your first few checks? I want to make sure there's some disclosure here. I was one of those checks at some point. What scale were you at when you raised those uh, first few checks? Well, those
1: first few checks, we were beyond the eight figures by, by the time we raised those first few checks. And they When went, you said you were
0: beyond eight figures, you mean you were like north of $10 million, not north of yeah, $100 million.
1: Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And those few checks, the, the impetus behind those was to bring on talent like yourself. We called it a sweetheart round or a sweetheart note because we wanted to bring on amazing talent. So there weren't any VCs in that note. It was everyone that was pretty much hand selected from a group of friends. Yeah. You know, so like yourself, like Nick from Drive and like from this amazing individuals that could really contribute to the business that had the experience and that we wanted to actually call and talk to. You know like, like I'll call you when you're in China and we'll yeah. talk about things, you know. Yeah. So That was the reason why we raised, and it wasn't because of need.
0: And has that been helpful? You know, we raised money. We raised $500,000 at Native. About half the investors, I would say, were really helpful, like people that I could call and be like, hey, this is a problem I'm having. Have you had it before? Nick was the first episode of this podcast. He actually helped me with a bunch of trademark stuff, or he at least made me think about trademark stuff early on. One of our investors was uh, an executive at Facebook who was really helpful at help, like, helping us just get access to the right people at Facebook that we needed. Another was just like a calming voice who you know was a VC and had sort of seen a bunch of things happen in San Francisco. And when I called him up, he's like, uh, his name's Paul Ferris from Azure. And he's like, hey, Moise, this is how to think about things. You're panicking too much. Have the investors that you sort of let in those sweethearts. Have those sweethearts been helpful?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you nailed it on the head with about 50%. Okay. Even when you hand select these yeah. uh, these group of investors, yeah. everyone's got their own lives, right? Everyone has yeah. their own focus. So of everyone you hand select, only 50% will be really valuable. So yeah. imagine if you don't hand select them and it's just a, a group of a bunch of different people, like the value out of that will be dramatically lower. So yeah, 50%, I can call anytime. I want to say this you, know, you got to manage expectations, right? Everyone's got their own lives. Everyone's got their own jobs. Sure. Just because they invest in your company doesn't mean that you have, you know, 10 hours a week of their time. Sure. And you got to manage expectations. So it's really key decisions. Hey, I'm going through this. What do you think? You don't need manufacturers in here or whatever. It's like, send out a broad email and, um, you know, hey, anybody can help me with connecting with this person, that person. That's where you can get really rapid responses and they can be really helpful.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's do a little bit of fast-forwarding. You've raised this money from a bunch of sweethearts, including myself. You've spent $250,000 on Facebook and Google with the Santa Claus commercial, and you're like, okay, I'm not going to talk about anything. I'm going to be less serious and be more cheeky with my humor because that's what's resonating with consumers. At what point do you start getting off Facebook and Google? I think one of the most impressive things I found about Manscaped is the diversity of channel acquisition. Like YouTube is a really hard channel for people to scale. Hulu, we've tried on Hulu, like Native has been on Hulu ads, wasn't nearly as successful as you guys. First, help me understand your largest channels of customer acquisition. Is it YouTube? Is it still Facebook? Or like, what is the largest channel still? It depends.
1: Facebook and Google is still a very large channel. Yeah. Google and Facebook is a large channel, right? Because Facebook encompasses both of their assets, Facebook and Instagram is a very large channel because you can't forget about instagram everyone talks about facebook but instagram is a huge channel so that's where a lot of spend goes you know the other spend is on google of course there's adwords right there is gdn there is so many different ad units that you guys have like most startup entrepreneurs haven't even considered on the google platform and then there's youtube which drives a tremendous amount of traffic and that's i should say Tremendous amounts of views, not necessarily traffic, okay? Because there's so much inventory on YouTube. It's just, it's so hard to crack. Like YouTube is so hard to crack.
0: Okay. Let me ask you in a different way. If all of these channels were going to be regulated by the FTC and all of them were going to be shut down except one, which one would you want to continue to exist?
1: It depends on when. It depends on when. Right now, I would say Google.
0: Google. Okay. And then help me understand a little bit more about YouTube. Are you guys doing pre-roll ads or are you guys doing like influencer-based ads on YouTube?
1: We're doing pre-roll ads. We're doing influencer ads. We're doing user-generated content. We have a team of five influencer department. And all they do is work with influencers. So it gets to a point where you have to keep grinding. And there's a tipping point where you're like, everything starts to gel because all of these channels lift everything. You can't just be on Facebook and be successful. You gotta be on Facebook, on Google, on Hulu, on everything else to actually scale massively. So we realized that on very early on, this year is a big push for us to kind of be everywhere, including billboards. Um, we got 20 billboards out there now, you know, urinal ads and UFC fights. We were on the Conor McGregor fight. We had a car in NASCAR.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. So tell me how you structure your team to handle all that then. Is one person that's working on YouTube also working on Instagram? Or is there somebody who's dedicated to YouTube, somebody who's dedicated to UFC fights, and somebody who's dedicated to NASCAR?
1: There's an out of home director, Joey Kovac, just phenomenal. And to answer your first part of your question is how do you structure? You got to find the best people. The best people will bring in the best people, will bring in the best people. It's so important as an entrepreneur to build the team. And one of your primary jobs as a CEO is to build the team, Yeah. to lead the vision and build the team. So bringing in the right generals, the right key people in the leadership team will automatically start to bring in the right people on the next layer. Yeah. You know, Ryan and I have been working together, Ryan as a VP of marketing has been working together for almost a decade now. He brought in Joey Kovac, which is phenomenal. Joey, you know, did a lot of the marketing for movement before they exited from the ground up. Then he brought in Nate Singer to handle Google and YouTube. And then we brought in Natalie Hoffman to handle uh, radio. And then she was phenomenal. Um, She got us on Howard Stern and all these amazing uh, podcasts. And then they brought in Lauren on the marketing. And and Lauren does all of the influencers, built out the influencer team.
0: So it sounds like you have... um directors for each channel. You have somebody who manages YouTube, somebody who manages out of home, somebody who manages Instagram and Facebook, and that's sort of how you structured it under a VP of marketing.
1: Correct. But for a startup though, I don't want you to think that that's what you need to start. You don't need that to start. You gotta do everything on your own, right? In the beginning, Ryan and I were on YouTube every single day, like clicking through, refreshing like a thousand times a day to see metrics. Right. That's how you start. And then when you reach critical mass, That's when you bring in someone to handle, when you go on and you pioneer the next channel.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great uh, thing to mention. I feel like a lot of people want to be in seven different marketing channels when they launch their business. And it's hard to be an expert. You know, I've rarely met people who are good at Facebook and Google ads. And people are like, yeah, I'm going to try and run Facebook, Google, Snap, Pinterest, and TikTok ads when I launch my business. And I'm like... You're not going to be able to measure, like you're going to forget everything that you've ever done. By the time you're looking at TikTok ads, which is your fifth channel today, you're going to forget what your Facebook ads look like. And so it's really hard to be a master of so many channels right out of the gate. You know, I'm a big fan of sort of going deep on one or two channels or three, if you are able to, and becoming a master of those and then hiring people. Once you understand the metrics behind those and you've built some sort of critical mass and know how to, like, you know, you understand the next three to four months of the trajectory of that channel.
1: Mm Mm-hmm you got to master it. You got to master it before you move on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then how do you think about budgets when you're doing this? So is there like a quarterly meeting for budgets or an annual meeting for budgets where you're like, okay, influencer team, you get 12% of our budget, radio team, you get 10% of our budget? Or are you like, sort of like, you know what, influencers, we're willing to spend up to $30 CAC, spend as much as you can until you hit $30. How do you think about that? To be
1: honest, now we are. We're much more systematic now. We're much more organized. But The first two years, let's be honest, nobody gets set budgets in the first two years. You're still learning so much. You're still growing so much. And it's still so fluid that like, you know, we just launched this channel with this video. The CPA is so well, got to go balls out, right? Yeah.
0: And that's the only thing that matters over the course of the next eight weeks is this channel. Everyone else, be quiet. This is the channel that's going to make our business now. Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny.
1: I want to make sure that the listeners and the entrepreneurs out there don't think that you need to have budgets in place on that. In the early days, You just gotta make it work. That's all you gotta do. You gotta make it work. That's all you gotta focus on.
0: Yeah. In the early days, it's always audibles, right? Like every day is a new fire that you have to put out. And the rare days where you don't have fires and can sort of focus on marketing channels, you got to go with just what's working and not dogma. You can't be like, you know what? YouTube worked for Paul at Manscaped. I'm going to spend money on Paul. You know, people come up to me and they're like, Hey, Facebook worked for you guys. How should I get Facebook to work for me? And I'm like, look, Facebook worked for us. What worked for us almost certainly will not work for you. We had a specific use case. We were on there at a different time than Facebook is today. And like we were spending a lot of resources on Facebook for you guys the content that you have and the cheeky humor is much more amenable to video than it may be to like a quick mobile photo and so it's just a different channel that works and like people cannot get caught up on the dogma of others they have to call audibles when they get to the line see what's working and spend their time and resources there absolutely what did you guys fail at maybe fail is a bad word you know at native we failed at a ton of stuff operations for a really long time until we hired a stellar operations person um finance forever Certainly the like not doing the cheeky marketing was tough. did you guys have operational supply issues because these things can't be easy to make it's not like you're with deodorant, you want to make more. you probably can do it in, the, in like in a week you need a week of heads up, maybe two weeks. These are hardware components that cannot be made in a day or two days. It's not mixing ingredients together well, I mean some of your products are, but a lot of them aren't. What were the things that you guys struggled with to make the business a success
1: absolutely right so. I'll answer in a kind of an all encompassing way. Like if you're in software and SaaS, then you don't have to worry about making stuff. Yeah. You got to worry about them having enough servers, but now there's clouds. You so don't really have to worry about that anymore either. So that's why software can be so lucrative and you get the right win. But for hard and physical products and operations, supply chain, it's a lot of work. So if you're going to ask me, I'm exactly with you. We failed in operations. It, We failed multiple times in operations.
0: Give me an example of a disaster you guys had or like one of the things that you failed at in operations specifically.
1: Yeah, so we were on a run rate. We had projected inventory for the entire Q1. We bought it. We have it in stock. It was November. We're like, well, we're good. Like we bought so much inventory. We're like, we're good for the next quarter. This is November. And we're like, we're good until April. That's how much inventory we had. By December 16th, it sold out all inventory. And we're like, oh, crap. It was crazy. You're like Everyone and our families were in the warehouse packing new inventory to send out. So that was definitely a failure. We shipped late to our customers, which means they weren't happy with us. That That's a fail for us. And we sure. wanted to delight our customers all the time. That sucked. And that didn't go away, by the way. like That happens all the time. Yeah. All the time. Like When you're scaling you can never predict how a going would do a you know a lead things would just pop and you know influencers would launch their videos things would just pop it's just really difficult to manage all the channels we're omni channel right so we're not just a subscription we're not just a D2C company sure. we you know we've got Amazon we've got D2C we've got international and we've got retail so now we're working with all of our retail partners you're planning with them months and months like retail is a different beast it's not D2C you're planning a year in advance at all times
0: Yeah, I didn't understand how hard it would be until Native got into retail. Like, you know, we scaled. We had the same problems you did in terms of like running out of inventory. In 2015, we were making 500 units of deodorant a week. By 2017, we were making 21,000 units a day and we were still like uh, selling out. If you bought your deodorant on a Thursday, it was either made the day before or the day after. It was like, it not like we had a lot of inventory, but once you sell into Target and Walmart and like large brick and mortar stores, their first order could be 300,000 units or 20,000, 50,000 units. And all of a sudden the just in time inventory that you had always been reliant on is no longer sustainable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It gets really difficult as your SKU starts to expand also. Yeah, yeah.
0: So tell me about some of the retailers that you guys are in. You guys are in Target today. Any other retailers?
1: We're in Target, um, Best Buy, and we're really going to focus on Target and Best Buy. We feel that like that's where our audience lives. You know, We have a lot of great um, retail partners. For the time being, at least for 2020, we're really going to focus on Target and Best Buy.
0: Does your online site make up the majority of your sales or do Target and Best Buy make up the majority of your sales? No, d to c web,
1: e-commerce makes up the majority of our sales.
0: And is there like cyclicality to the business? Uh, it's really interesting that you said by December 16th, you had sort of sold out. I imagine that people are buying this product for Christmas. Is there another bump in sales, for instance, right before Valentine's Day? Yeah,
1: Valentine's Day, Father's Day, any gift giving holiday, we see yeah. a bump because that's when women buy as gifts for men. And then, yeah. of course, holiday, that's when women really buy as gifts for men. But then men are also spending on themselves. So Q4 is definitely huge. Just any other e-commerce company. Q4 is huge for everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the Q4 is like for native, it was actually probably one of the worst quarters in part because like you tend to wear more deodorant in the summer when it's hotter out as Mm -hmm. opposed to the winter when it's cold out and some people give deodorant as gifts in fact a lot of people do a lot more than I suspected but like you know if I gave you a deodorant as a gift I think you'd be like well this is nice but like okay this is like a pretty mediocre gift I mean if I give you a package of Manscaped it'd be a very different product like you know it's it's obviously a higher price point and a great like um a much nicer gift I wonder if men ever accuse like men who get this as a gift from their female partners I wonder if they ever accuse them of being like this is a gift for yourself like when I buy lingerie for you it's a gift for me this is a gift for yourself i wonder if that ever happens
1: we haven't pulled our customers but um, that might be the case but we have a lot of unboxing experience that people unboxing reactions on instagram and tiktok so it's pretty funny
0: did you work your way up uh, when it came to influencer advertising did you start at like micro influencers and work your way up to like you know a-list celebrities or were you like you know what let's go big right out of the gate and get the kim kardashians or tom brady's of the world to try this product
1: we still haven't gone with celebrities like We have not tapped any celebrities yet. We're talking, but yeah. we went with amazing influencers. So our first influencer that we ever brought on was Jose uh, Zaviga of Teaching Men's Fashion. He's phenomenal. The dude knows his stuff. He really knows men's hygiene and grooming. And so we tapped him as one of our first influencers, and we still work very closely with him. To this
0: day, was your budget right away going after uh, maybe the celebrities is a bad example? Was your budget right away sort of saying, "Hey, let's put ten thousand, or fifty thousand, or a hundred thousand dollars to test among different influencers to see what works and what doesn't," or were you like, "I'm ready to go with an influencer that has five hundred thousand people that may not be an A-list celebrity, but it's certainly a large Instagram celebrity." Yes,
1: I think if you're going to test the influencer market, testing micro influencers will give you a really bad data because there's just not enough reach, right? Yeah you got to test with enough reach to have – it's like your sampling, right? The, the more data you have, the better sure. results, the better data you've got – the better you can conclude on your data, right? So I think at that time, Jose had like 4 million followers or on YouTube, yeah. and we felt that was the right amount for us to really do a, a good test.
0: Wow. All right, so you're looking for guys who already like – Rather large on YouTube, but before you yeah. uh, spend money there, is that still the case? Are you still sort of focusing on those people that have a million plus, or are you willing to go down now to people who have 10,000 plus subscribers?
1: Now our influencer team evaluates each influencer, potential influencer partner. What we evaluate for primarily is authenticity. Yeah. If you've got 30,000 followers or 30,000 fans or whatever that is on each of these, on these different platforms, in your instagram all you're doing is pushing product that you're not the right influencer for us yeah but we want you to actually test our product um really use it and be a fan of it that authenticity comes out because we as a brand really value our authenticity we want to have a really authentic voice that's really important to our
0: brand and so how do female influencers sort of uh, project that authenticity is it sort of talking about their partners or how do female you know users project that authenticity
1: it depends usually it's the way that they the way that they do it it depends on which platform on instagram we are just taking pictures of it as, yeah. as endorsing it and many times they're taking pictures with a partner as like you know you guys because yes. instagram is a very photo based sure platform whereas on youtube it's mostly couples right if it's a woman instagram or a female instagram they would pair up with their partner and talk about the product because there's so many ways you can talk about this product yeah. right like men can talk about how great it is, how it doesn't hurt you, how it's the right tools for the job and how much better it makes them feel. Women talk about it as, hey, you know, you give this to your men and it makes them feel much better. It makes you like it more. And, you know, so we leave it up to them to kind of put their own spin on it.
0: Gotcha. We're almost out of time. So I just want to ask a couple more questions. You know, the business has changed dramatically since you went from that serious advertising and it was you and Ryan sort of refreshing YouTube to today. You know, you're sponsoring for uh, NFL teams and NASCAR teams. And that's pretty amazing. What is your goal with a business? I think that like... Do you want to work here for 20 years? Is there an exit strategy within five years? Where do you want to go with the business? Uh, The business that you've created is right in the wheelhouse of a lot of CPG companies. It's almost like there's a lot of competition for the Gillettes of the world from the Harry's and Dollar Shave Clubs of the world. This is going up. This is like in the same industry, but going after a very different type of category or niche. And you're uniquely positioned and sort of one of the few companies in that space. What do you want to do?
1: And yeah, the way that we think about that is we never, we never, I personally never create or build a business for the sole purpose of, of exiting with that in mind. I just feel like if you create a successful business that transcends, you know, fads or that can be multi-generational, that's a potentially multi-generational, then the potential acquirers just come. It's It's natural. That's kind of how we think about it. Let's build a really successful business. And so when we when you look back at in the last 40, 50 years, there aren't many brands that are able to be multi-generation multi-generational. Look at it like head and shoulders. They've sure generations upon generation. Gillette, generations upon generations. Pantene. there aren't that many brands that are able to actually do that. You've mentioned and,
0: all Procter and Gamble brands. They're gonna love that. <laughs>
1: No, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch, right? There's a lot of Unilever brands also, right? There's not that many that actually have the unit economics to be able to transcend. What I mean by that is it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to build a brand. It is really expensive to build a brand. And if you're trying to sell a shampoo in which at retail and you're trying to build a business that way, there's no way you have enough margin to actually build a brand. Because you don't want to take 20, 30 years to build a brand, right? Sure. You want to be able to spend $50 million on marketing and then grow that to $100 million on marketing for five years, six years, and really have a global brand. Then you start harvesting. That's kind of how we see it, right? You have to spend the money up front. You have to pay your dues and build that brand, really understand your audience, build, uh, create amazing products within those five to six, seven years. And then after that, you can really start harvesting. So that's kind of how we see building a brand. We believe that with our unit economics, we recoup the cap on the first time sale. So beyond anything else, many- You're profitable on
0: first unit sale. We're profitable on first unit sale.
1: So we're able to recycle that cash very, very quickly. So that's how we've been able to scale so quickly without any institutional funding. I think there's not that many companies that are able to do
0: that. There's virtually no companies that are able to do that, especially that like, you know, there's companies that are able to do that to that get to four or five million dollars in revenue. Virtually no companies are able to do that at 50 million dollars in revenue. That's why the Aways and all birds of the world have raised capital.
1: Yeah, we're very fortunate that we're able to get beyond nine figures. Yeah. In revenue without institutional capital and you know to have that kind of unit economics. So that allows us so we believe that that really helps us be multi-generational. We're going to grow this thing. We're launching internationally. We're already in Australia, Canada, UK. We'll be in all of Europe. And within the next three to five years, be a truly global brand. And then it's all for harvesting. Yeah. What's really interesting beyond that is, the way, the way we think about it is, we're purely incremental, moist. There's no portfolio company in groin care. And like We're probably the last frontier in male grooming.
0: Agreed. Yeah. It's really amazing when like, it's not like you're competing with Gillette. You're in the same category and we're a P&G and acquirer of Manscaped. You would sit within their grooming category likely. It's not like you're cannibalizing Gillette sales. Exactly.
1: You know, we, if anything, we can help it, right? Yeah. We're truly incremental to the top line revenue. And if you look at men's hygiene in general, it's definitely growing, but it's not growing as fast as our category.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, your category is primarily growing because of you. I think that like people rarely realize that when native launched into target, we grew their deodorant category, something like 8% or 10% first year and rarely do like, you know, target hadn't seen that in a really long time. The men's below the waist grooming category isn't growing quickly. And you're riding those coattails. You're the reason that it's growing quickly.
1: You know, we're seeing very similar data with, with Target also. Um, great partner, great to be working with them. They're love phenomenal. Target. Yeah, yeah, love Target. They're just phenomenal partners. But we're, we're seeing very similar things with them. Like this category hasn't been innovated, and it's a brand new category. You know, and yeah, we got lucky with the name Manscaped that we defined the category.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic name. Okay, one last question, because I, I put on Twitter, I said, I was interviewing you for a podcast, what should I ask you? And someone from your own team actually asked me to ask you this. And they said, uh, have Paul guess how many gallons of boba tea the Manscaped team has consumed in total? Do you want to make a guess?
1: <laughs> so the reason behind this is my wife loves boba. She's addicted to boba. So she got the entire company addicted to boba. So I would say many, many, many hundreds of gallons of boba. Okay,
0: give me a number because I'm going to tweet at this guy and be like, hey, is this right or wrong?
1: I would say, man, because we order boba almost every day. I I don't know, I got to be like 120 gallons.
0: Okay. No, you're, it's definitely more than 120 gallons. If you're Boba <laughs> every day, that's probably like 18 ounces. There's 70 people on the team. Probably 40 of them are getting Boba. No, it's going to be more than that. Yeah,
1: our, bo- our Boba budget is ridiculous.
0: ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great like line item to have in a budget when you're like doing a P&L and sort of showing it to your board. You're like, this is how much we're going to spend on Boba this, uh, this quarter. <laughs> yeah. Paul, this was fantastic. I really love what you, this conversation. One of the things that I've realized about you is that aside from having this incredible vision for the company and sort of understanding where you fit within the CBG space, You also have these humble origins and you have like the perspective. You still remember the perspective you had when you launched the business and were struggling trying to get the right messaging out, trying to understand, you know, how to get production up and like understand what entrepreneurs are going through when they're still much smaller businesses. I feel like very few people have that perspective. And it's so refreshing to hear because I think that a lot of people who are building two, three million form or who are at a two, three, four million dollar run rate don't necessarily want to talk about stuff that I brought up, which was like, how do you think about budget? You go back and you're like, look, budget is what we think about today. The first two years, we called audibles at the line every time we went up there. And that was really great. I love how you mentioned that because it makes me realize that sometimes I've forgotten what it was like to be in the trenches and makes me miss those days. So I appreciate you sort of bringing that up and having that like, you know, in the trenches type of mentality. That was fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. I think deep down at heart, I'm an entrepreneur and I'll always be an entrepreneur. It's a special breed and I celebrate all entrepreneurs out there because it takes guts to go out there and to sacrifice every single day to follow your dreams. It's not easy.
0: Couldn't agree more with that. It takes a ton of guts. You know, you got to stand up to your family and your friends who are certainly at my age are like lawyers and are making a lot of money and have families and you're like, you know what, I'm going to put everything on the line. So have a ton of respect for those entrepreneurs and have a ton of respect for the business and you too.
1: No, oh, thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Paul. This was fantastic. Uh, really appreciate your time. Congratulations on all the success. Super excited. You know, after all of this, I, it also makes me realize how excited I am as an investor in Manscaped. I feel like <laughs> when you said all this, I'm like, oh, fantastic. My investment's doing really well. So thanks again for all the time and for taking my money. Really appreciate that.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to see
0: what your next project's going to be. Me Sorry. too. I don't know what it'll be. <laughs> Hopefully once this COVID stuff dies down, I'll, I'll, ha- I'll think of something. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. Hey, guys, that's a wrap for this episode of the Exit Strategy podcast. We'll be back next Thursday with another new episode. And if you like this podcast, visit thehustle.co to subscribe to The Hustle, a daily email that will give you the business news you need to start your day.